morning. morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship this morning. You know, there's not, there's not enough pressure in this job to begin with, but now Ted's done put the pressure of the rain on me on top of that, so we better get to it this morning. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them out and turn with me to the book of Genesis. And once again, to chapter 29, we're actually going to pick up the last little section of 29 that we read last week. We're going to read it again in context of chapter 30, and the majority of my comments this morning will focus on chapter 30. And, and you'll recall that I gave this, this sermon series through the book of Genesis, this title, overarching title of our study, is we are looking at the stories that explain our stories. In other words, we're going back and looking at the book of Genesis because we believe that studying these Old Testament texts are actually going to help us understand who we are even in today's world in 2019. It's also interesting, though, that, that when Moses wrote this, he wrote it as a way of explaining the story of the Israelites. I, Moses was the one who was, was given the responsibility by God to, to, to go and, and to lead the children of Israel out of their Egyptian slavery. And, and into the promised land. But you'll recall that the, that the Israelites failed to act upon the promise that God had given them and, and to actually go in and take the land. And as a result, they, were, they were, had to go and, and wander for 40 years in the wilderness uh, by God's uh, di discipline upon them. And it was during that, that time that Moses actually went back and took all of the, the oral stories that had been passed down from generation to generation to generation, and he codified those stories, and he wrote those stories down. And I believe that Moses did all that in order for the children of Israel to learn from their ancestors, in order in, in to learn, uh, to come to a greater understanding about what it means to have faith, and so that they could come to a greater understanding that faith necessitates obedience. And I believe that Moses wrote all of those stories down so that the children of Israel could also gain a, a deeper reverence and a deeper respect for the same God that had loved them and pursued them and had lavished his grace upon them. And in that regard, I see that those, those stories here in the Old Testament do the same for us. They, they help us understand ourselves because the, the characters that are revealed here in this text, they're not, as we like to say, they, they were not, they're not airbrushed for us. They're not, they're not painted up as something other than they are. They're presented with all of their actions and all the things that they involved in. It's a pretty ugly story at times. And in that regard, it mirrors the stories of our own lives. Because sometimes our lives are pretty messy and pretty ugly and pretty dysfunctional as well. But, but when Moses tells us these stories, they're there to present for us a God that needs no airbrushing. A God that needs nothing said about him that's untrue because everything that he does is right and is good and is just. And so we get this picture of our lives in the lives of these characters and we also get a picture of what God does in our lives just as he works in their life as well. What's also interesting about this particular text that I'm going to read for you this morning, though, is, is the fact that these Israelites that were out there roaming in the wilderness waiting to go in and, and to take the land that God had given them could all find their origins back in the passage that I'm going to read for you this morning because this is the passage that relates to us all of the children that Jacob had, save for one, Benjamin, who comes later, we'll get to it. But we begin to see all of the children that wound up forming the tribes of Israel that all of these Israelites would have been able to trace their lineage back to. Now, in the process of that, what we also learn is that Jacob has two 
wives. Many of you have already looked at the title of today's sermon, and you'll notice I have entitled it Desperate Housewives. And the reason I've done that is because we're going to see that Jacob had two very desperate housewives, but they were desperate for two different reasons. We're going to see that this morning. Let's go back, pick up in Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and then she stopped bearing. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel and said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, here is my maid Bilhah, go into her and she will bear a child on my knees and that I also may have children by her. And then she gave him Bilhah, her maid as wife, and Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case and he has also heard my voice and given me a son and therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing children, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and then Leah said, a troop come. So she called his name Gad, and Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Now, Reuben, in the days of wheat harvest, and he went in, the, went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your mandrakes. But she said to her, it, it is, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, I, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. And then God remembered Rachel. God listened to her, opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God 
has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this word that you've given us, a word which quite honestly is difficult to read and yet we know that you have given it to us so that we can see ourselves in it, but even more importantly, we can see you in it. And there are many of us in this room today that need those two visions clearly brought into focus in our lives. So I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would do exactly that, that you would train our focus on you. Help us to see you the way we should. Then help us to respond the way we should. We pray that this would happen ultimately for your glory, but also for our own good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as I mentioned in my introduction of this passage, Moses is describing for us Jacob's two very desperate housewives. And uh, Leah is the older. She is the, the lesser uh, attractive one. Uh, we learned last week that she was the one who along with her uh, her dad was able, Laban was able to deceive Jacob and to trick, uh, Laban, trick Jacob into marrying her. Jacob, if you recall, had, had believed that he was marrying Rachel. Jacob had believed that, that he, she was the one that he was going uh, to, to end up with and he had served Laban for seven years in order to have her hand in marriage. But then Laban and Leah tricked Jacob, and, and on the wedding night, rather than actually marrying Rachel, he ended up with Leah, and when the sun came up the next morning, he could actually tell that that was what had happened and that he had been deceived. And he was outraged, but he was also trapped. In fact, Laban tells Jacob that if he wants to marry Rachel, he'll have to serve him for another seven years because... And because that's, that was the agreement, and so because Jacob loved Rachel so much, that's how he ended up with these two wives. He ended up with both of these sisters as his wives. Now, it should be noted that such an arrangement was not the way that God intended for things to be. God's original design for marriage was not polygamy. It was not for a man to be married to multiple women, nor was it God's design for, multiple, for, for a woman to be married to multiple men. Rather, God's plan that is clearly established back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve was that marriage was to be between one man and one woman in a monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong relationship. Amen. That has been God's design all along. It is God's design even for marriage today. And whenever human beings have gone against God's design for marriage and whenever they continue to go against God's design for marriage today and in relationships, trouble and heartache always follow. It follows here in this passage for us as well. Jacob had gone from having never been married to suddenly... He's got two wives, and not just those two wives, he's got the two wives' handmaids who were also there with whom he had as sexual relations in order to produce children. Now, under such circumstances, with regard to that, 
it, we see how far from God's design for marriage that this relationship actually became. And we should not be surprised to find conflict and contention and jealousy and bickering and desperation. Such messy dysfunction always results whenever human beings go against God's plan and God's design. Now, as I said, both of Jacob's housewives are desperate, but I also said they're desperate for different reasons. We noted last week that Leah was desperate for Jacob's love. She desperately wanted to be loved like, like Rachel was loved. She, she wanted, when, when Jacob looked at her, she wanted to be looked at the same way that Jacob looked at Rachel. She wanted to have that same sense of connection with him that Jacob had had with, with Rachel. But alas, that was not to be. And so she was desperate for that love. Rachel, on the other hand, had all of that from Jacob. She had his love. She had his devotion. She had his affection. But what she did not have was children. The scriptures tell us that she was barren. So Leah was unloved, but she was blessed with children. Rachel was loved, but she was childless. And such a messy home life made for a miserable experience for Jacob. And this is the desperate situation that Moses reveals to us. And that's really the whole setting of this entire text. But then when we get to verse 30, it's like, it's like God in his camera lens just sort of narrows everything down and we start to follow the life of Rachel. It does not mean that we're not going to see some of Jacob in this story, that we're not going to see some of Leah in the story, that we're not going to hear of the handmaids. We are, but notice as we walk through this text, Moses has honed in the spotlight on Rachel. And we're going to see what Moses wants to do. He wants to illuminate for us how Rachel goes about trying to fix her problem of barrenness. Or we might say it this way, how she goes about trying to alleviate her desperation. And in her story, we get a glimpse into our stories. So notice for me the first point that you see on your text today, and that is that Rachel attempts to alleviate her desperation caused by her barrenness by, first of all, turning to her spouse. Rachel turns to her spouse. I want you to notice what Moses tells us there in verse 1. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Now, what becomes obvious was that Jacob's love was not enough for Rachel. As much as she had of that, that was not enough to satisfy her. She had him, but... In those tents on the other side of the compound, what she could hear was those babies crying. She could hear the laughter that was coming out of those other tents. Every time she walked outside, she could see the diapers hanging from the clothesline, drying. And all of those sights and all of those sounds just seemed to remind her of the fact of what she did not have. And jealousy welled up within her. Envy welled up within her. And so she turns to Jacob and she reminds him and she demands of him, give me children or else I die. Now that is a very blunt demand. In the Hebrew, it is as blunt as the demand that Jacob gave to Laban after he had served for Rachel's hand for seven years. With the same sort of bluntness, Rachel looks at Jacob and says, give me children or else I die. 
But one thing that's beneath that blunt demand is an underlying blame of Jacob for the fact that she doesn't have any children. And furthermore, what Rachel's doing is demanding something from Jacob that he has no power to provide. Now, the fact that Leah had conceived four times gives indication that Jacob's not the one to blame for Rachel's infertility. Jacob knows that, and so he, he launches out in, in anger toward Rachel, and he demands her to recognize that he's not God. He doesn't have the ability to do for her what only God could do. And what we notice is that in turning to her spouse, in turning to Jacob to alleviate her desperation, Rachel commits three sins. The first one is, is the sin of jealousy. It's the sin of, of envying her sister. It's the sin of, of looking and comparing her situation to somebody else's and then becoming bitter by the fact that she's not in the same situation. That's the first sin. The second sin that she's guilty of is ascribing to Jacob what belongs only to God. And that is the power to grant offspring. That too is a sin. But then thirdly, Notice this, Rachel is also guilty of exaggeration. She says, give me children or else I'm going to die. Now, understand this, particularly in that culture, to be childless was a, was a very difficult, it was a very hard uh, and unfortunate condition. It was one that brought much shame upon the, the, the woman particularly, but it was not fatal. It was not something that, that would cause someone to physically die. So her exaggeration, many scholars have pointed to the fact that she is acting very spoiled, like she had always gotten everything she wanted, but she was not getting what she wanted here. And so she lashes out in desperation because she was accustomed to getting her way. The point is simply this. Rachel's barrenness caused her to become desperate. And in her desperation, her first response was to turn to her spouse to fix the problem. But no solution was going to be found with him. Which brings us to the next point on your outline. Notice that her, in her continued desperation, Rachel turned to her surrogate. She turned to her surrogate. Rachel's handmaid, her servant girl, was named Bilhah. And in that ancient culture, it was an accepted practice that if a wife could not conceive and have children, then her husband could insist that she provide him with her handmaid as her surrogate. And then the children who would be born to the servant girl would be his legitimate children. And the mistress could also claim them for her own as well. But notice the, the factor here is that Jacob did not request for that to take place. It was not at his request that this entire situation came about. This whole situation was something that Rachel proposed. If you'll recall, this was the same solution that Sarah, Abraham's wife, had proposed in order to, to get around her barrenness. And she had given her servant girl, Hagar, to Abraham. And in light of how terribly things ended up there, a situation that Jacob surely was familiar with, with the fact that Sarah and Hagar became bitter enemies of one another, and with the fact that Ishmael, who was, was born to Hagar, and Isaac, who was born to Sarah, could not get along and, and wound up separating. That whole issue should have, should have caused Jacob to go, wait a minute, this is not a good idea. But that's not what happens. Instead, he takes Bilhah into his tent, and she conceives, bears a son. Rachel names him Dan. Dan is an interesting name because Dan literally means judge. 
And, and Rachel takes that name, judge, and applies it to the situation and says, God has judged my case and he has heard my voice and given me a son. And now what we see is the competition is on. Because Leah's already had four children, but at the end of chapter 29, we see that she no longer was having any children. And so Rachel's figured out her way. She's got the one. So the next thing you know, Bilhah is conceived again. And this time she bears another son. And Rachel names him Naphtali, which literally means my wrestling. And she says, she indicates that there was a competition that was going on between the two sisters. Who was going to win out? Who was going to have the most children? But notice that Leah says, well, two can play that game. If you're going to go that direction, I'm going to go that direction too. So she sends Zilpah over to, to Jacob and, and Zilpah conceives and, and bears two more sons. One's named Gad, which means a troop is coming from me. And the second one is happy. His name is Asher, which means happy. And he's like, I'm, I'm happy because the Lord has blessed me with many, many children. So if you're keeping score now, here's the score. Leah is up to six credited to her. Four that she bore naturally and two by her handmaid. Leah is up to two, none of which she bore naturally, but two that have come by her handmaid. And what is obvious to everyone on this compound is simply that the ability to conceive rested with every woman there except for Rachel. And therefore her desperation continues. In spite of the fact that she's turned to her spouse... In spite of the fact that she's turned to her surrogate, she is reminded every single day that she is, cannot conceive. And ultimately, neither solution that she had went for had changed anything. But Rachel still has more to learn. Notice the next point on your outline, and that's that Rachel turned to her superstitions. She turned to her superstitions. Beginning in verse 14, we get what is a very interesting, and honestly, it's an embarrassing story that involves mandrakes. We probably don't know. I don't know what a mandrake was. Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham describes it this way. He says, A mandrake was a perennial Mediterranean plant that bears a bluish flower in the winter and a yellowish plum-sized fruit in the summer. And in ancient times, mandrakes were famed for arousing desire and for also helping barren women to conceive. They were commonly referred to as love apples in the Hebrew language. And the, the, name, the word for love and the word for mandrake are even very similar in the Hebrew language. What's interesting is that Reuben goes out. Reuben is the oldest son of Jacob. He's out in the time of harvest and he finds some of these. And maybe he wanted his mom to get ahead in the whole arms race. And so he grabs a bunch of them up, brings them back and puts them in his mother's tent which then Rachel finds out about. And Rachel goes over to Leah and says, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And then Leah responds, astonishingly, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Now, isn't that ironic? Because couldn't Rachel legitimately have looked at Leah and said, you're going to accuse me of taking your husband away from you? When you're the one who deceived him into thinking that you were me and stole him to begin with, can you just not see that there's just nothing but fighting and ugliness going on in this family? Whatever the case may be with their relationship, Kent Hughes makes this point. He says the power of mandrakes was and is superstitious and not scientific. But what is clear here is that Rachel and Leah believed the mandrake myth and thus 
mandrakes become coins in this desperate bargain that takes place. You see, Rachel offers to trade Leah a night with Jacob for her son's mandrakes. Derek Kidner notes the shame that results when a family trades in things that should be above trade. Brothers and sisters, there are things that ought to be above trade. There are things that shouldn't happen. And the Bible's presenting us with a picture of people at their worst, not at their best. And he presents people at their worst because how often are we at our worst? We need to recognize that. Moses goes on to tell us that on that same day when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come to my tent tonight for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. Now, I want to dispel any rumors or any thoughts that we might have that in some way Jacob has just hit the lottery. We need to dispel right up front that Jacob's got it made because he's got all these women that are pulling at him all the time and wanting him to come here and wanting him to go there. There is no love mentioned in this chapter. The last time love was mentioned was in chapter 29. When we get to this chapter, all we see is a husband who has basically given over his responsibility to lead his family and to, to, to steward over his wife and to be able to help them and to lead them in an honest direction. He's given that over and now he is just being pulled and pushed and he is the one who is being manipulated into being hired by one of his own wives. There's nothing enviable about this situation that he finds himself in. It's ugly and it is wrong. And everybody in this passage, what you see them doing is what's right in their own minds. They are not consulting God. They are not asking him what would be the right thing to do. God does not figure into this passage. Rachel, she's got this aphrodisiac fertility fruit. And in return, she lets Leah have Jacob for the night. And notice just how terribly that plan backfires because Leah gets pregnant for the fifth time. And she names her son Issachar, which means wages. And somehow in her twisted thinking, Leah even believes that God's blessing her because she gave her handmaid over to Jacob. There's no way that I can make that make sense. And it's not supposed to make sense because it's wrong. But anyways, that's what we see. And then she conceives again and she has a son named Zebulun, which means dwelling. And then we find that she's really hoping by having a sick son that, that Jacob's going to come live with her in her dwelling place. And then she gets pregnant again with a daughter named Dinah whose name, by the way, is the female version of Dan and also means judge. So if you're keeping track, now Jacob's up to 11 children. He's got 10 boys, one girl. Benjamin's coming, but he's not here yet. And I can only imagine what those tents sounded like. There just must have been crying going on all the time. Here's what we cannot miss. Rachel is still childless. 
Her superstitious beliefs with regard to mandrakes had not relieved her desperation. Neither had her reliance on her surrogate servant girl. And neither had her blaming her spouse, Jacob. Rachel was stuck. She was in a place where nothing she had tried worked. All of her scheming had profited her nothing. She remained, as Kent Hughes has noted, in the deep lowliness of her barrenness. But all of that was about to change. Notice the last point on your outline. Rachel, and we could put in there, finally turned to her Savior. Moses writes in verses 22 and 23, Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son. I love the way that Moses puts that. God remembered Rachel. Had he forgotten her? Had Rachel in some way slid out of God's consciousness so that he did not remember her? Um, had he become so consumed with Leah and so consumed with blessing her that, that he just completely forgot about the fact that she had a sister. Is that, is that what Moses means when he says that God remembered? Is, is that the way that we are to understand this passage? I don't think so. Although I will say it may have appeared that way to Rachel at the time. You see... The scriptures, though, present God in a different way. The, the scriptures claim something that God is, is never changing, that he's been the same from beginning to end, and that there's nothing about him that is, is, is mutable. He is immutable. He does not change. And so what the scriptures reveal about God is the same God who created everything is the God who knows everything. And the same God who can even know when a sparrow falls from the sky the same God who also, the Bible tells us, knows the very number of hairs that are on our head. That same God cannot have one of us erased from his memory. But God will let us come to the end of ourselves. He will allow us to reach the point where we have tried everything else and listen, for some of us, that can be a very, very long process. It was for Rachel. For years, she attempted to scheme and to manipulate and to rely on anything and everything else other than the one place she should have gone. She was relying on all other kinds of solutions to alleviate her desperation, but none of it worked. Finally, Rachel turns to God. And as a result, Jeff Thomas has written this. He says, God remembers Rachel because she is finally looking to him and she's speaking to him about her problem and she's doing it humbly and believingly. She tried everything else. Nothing had worked. But now she speaks to the Lord and listen, he listened to her. He'd seen everything she had done. He'd heard every word she had spoken. There was nothing in her heart that she could hide from him, but now she was actually turning to him and praying to him, and she was casting herself on his great love. Kent Hughes adds this. He says, Rachel had come to the end of herself. The beautiful, favored wife 
had given up on her devices. There were no surrogates and no mandrakes. Everything was of God, pure and simple. And God remembered Rachel. This is, this is the climax of this entire chapter. Everything builds to this point. And it occurs after Rachel has given up on all of her other solutions and turned only and solely to the Lord. It's also important to note that it is at this point that she says, God has taken away my shame and my reproach. She names her son Joseph. And then for the very first time, the very first time since we've been introduced to Rachel, she calls on the covenant name of the Lord. And she says, the Lord shall add to me another son. She calls his name Yahweh for the first time here. And what that tells us is that as Jeff Thomas has stated, suddenly the glorious nature of the grace of the covenant God is dawning on Rachel's shadowy heart. That's what brings me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. When we find ourselves in desperate situations, it is often to remind us that there is only one to whom we can turn for help, the Lord. Now consider this for just a moment. There's approximately 2 million children of Israel out there wandering in the wilderness. Moses is recounting this story to them. And in the doing of that, they are being reminded of their heritage. They are being reminded of where they came from. They're being reminded of the fact that this story that tells them of who the tribes from whence they came is not a pretty story. This is a story about scheming and manipulation. It's a story about envy and jealousy. It's a story about surrogate competition. It's a story about love potions and, and the selling of intimacy. It's a story about gloating and, and humiliation and scorekeeping and tears that result from someone who's not loved and another one who doesn't have children. That's what this story was all about. But it was also a story about grace. And in that regard, this is a story that even those Israelites could identify with. You see, Rachel's story was their story too. They had all known what it meant to be in a desperate situation. Their desperation had not been from childlessness, but it had come from slavery. They had been, they had been conscribed to being the makers of Pharaoh's bricks. But then we read in Exodus chapter 2 that in their desperation. They groaned because of the bondage that they were in and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. God remembered the children of Israel just as he had remembered Rachel and just as God had heard Rachel's cries so he heard the cries of the Israelites, and by his grace, he delivered them. Both Rachel's story and, I, and, and, and their story of deliverance would serve to remind them that, look, when you find yourself in desperate situations, there's only one place that you can really turn for help, and that's the Lord. And brothers and sisters, the same thing is true for every single one of us in this room. All of us, in some way, shape, or form, understand desperation. For some, it's taken in the form of physical ailments and disease. For others, it's more in the mental realm of stress, depression, anxiety. 
Still others are desperate over financial uncertainty or job situations. Others are desperate in just the same way that Leah was desperate, wanting to be loved by someone. And I don't doubt that there's still some in this room this morning that may be struggling in the very same way that Rachel was struggling with the desire for children. The fact of the matter is we could fill in the blanks all day long with reasons for why we are desperate. And listen, while the world and while well-meaning family and friends and even our own thoughts and our own imaginations may tempt us to turn to other avenues to alleviate our desperation, we must learn that God calls us to Him first. God calls us to Him before He tells us to go anywhere else. Cast your cares upon me. Why? Because I care for you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and lay your problems on me. Why? Because I am the God who lifts burdens. I am the God who answers prayers. I'm the God who makes a way where there is no way. Here's the point. Desperation comes as a result of our longing for that which we do not have. Or it also comes from wanting something removed from us, which we do not want and have no ability in and our, ourselves to fix. And what I want you to know is that those elements are the very elements of the gospel. You see, longing for that which you, not, you do not have is actually a longing for grace. And longing for that to be removed from you that you do not want to have to continue bearing is actually a longing for mercy. But what we recognize is, is that neither of us, none of us in this room have the ability to, to give ourselves that which we do not have, which is grace, or to remove from ourselves that which we do not want in mercy. We can try to fix it all day long and we will never be able to. In fact, because of our sinful desires and our natures, all of us deserve the opposite of grace and mercy. We deserve condemnation and punishment. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death and that we stand condemned before God awaiting that death sentence to be carried out. And the truth is I cannot imagine a more desperate situation or a set of circumstances than that, than to be facing eternal separation from God in a place called hell because of our sin. And yet that is what all men, women, boys, and girls are facing. And to make matters even worse, there's nothing that you nor I can do about it. We cannot live better lives to make amends for our sin. We cannot turn over a new leaf. We cannot blame our parents or our spouses or others who have hurt us along the way. We cannot substitute someone else to take our place. We cannot rely on some false man-made God or superstition to get us out of our desperate situation. No, the desperate situation that we find ourselves in can only be remedied by turning to the one, the only one who can save us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what makes this story of desperation kind of tucked away deep in the middle of this Old Testament text such an important story for us. It reveals to us that the only place that we can ever turn for hope and to find salvation and rest for our souls is in the Lord. Maybe you have come here this morning and your testimony is that you've been turning to other things. You've been looking to other sources. You've been trying to deal with the desperation that's in your life, but you've been doing it by trying to find other places, and you've ended up again and again and again at a dead-end road. I want you to know that the Scriptures call you to turn to Jesus. 
He calls you to find your rest in Him. Will you do that today? Will you cast your burdens upon Him and allow Him to fulfill His promises to you? For some of you, that may mean that you simply need to release some of your cares and worries to Him. You need to trust in His ability to provide for you that which you most need in the middle of the storm that you find yourself in. For others, it may simply mean that you need to turn to Jesus to save you from your desperate situation that's been caused by your sin. I want you to know that if you will turn to him today, the scriptures are very clear. The Lord will save you. He will do for you exactly what he did for all of those, for Rachel and for, and for the children of Israel. He will answer your prayer when you call for him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.